Good morning. It's been quite a journey, hasn't it? These 40 days, I don't know about you, but I kind of reached for my 40 days booklet this morning. Ow. <laughs> it's finished. I do hope for many of us, actually, you know it takes 40 days to form a new habit. And I do hope for many of us, actually, a new habit has formed of d- daily doing that. It doesn't have to be the 40 days book, but something. of Just getting into God's word daily, preferably first thing in the morning. So we've just been reminded of the six core themes, those six strands of DNA, as it were, that we've been... Uh, preaching into and praying into throughout the week. And I know also many of you managed to get along to some of those midweek celebrations, which were just fantastic. Just put your hand if you managed to get along to at least one of those. That's brilliant. Turnout was great. They were just fantastic times together in the presence of God and uh, worship and prophecy was flowing and there was that powerful act of breaking bread together, which we're going to do again today. And they were just brilliant, brilliant times together. And the passion of, of your worship and your, your prayers, was just, it was just a privilege to be a part of that. I also found them to be challenging times. Those midweek meetings particularly, very challenging. You know, I do feel that we, we've been challenged uh, as a church and individually on many things, on our willingness to be obedient, our willingness to, to obey the scriptural command to go and, and to be able to to be willing to let certain things die if God calls to do that, to be willing to, to let go of certain things, to put certain things down, as Phil Moore put it the other week when he was here. In effect, you know, are we willing to let that alabaster jar of perfume break? Are we willing to smash the alabaster jar in order for that fragrance to spread? And as Matt, who was here just last week, Matt Althoff, challenged us with this. He said that the mission of God is a war against our own desire for comfort. And I think that's very true. The mission of God is a war against our desire for comfort. So this has been a challenging time, but I think it's been a very godly challenge. It's also been a very exciting time, a powerful time, and I do believe a very significant time for us as a church. Now, of course, a key reason behind doing these 40 days, um, and particularly the theme of King's DNA, is that this is a time of change in the church. As the church grows... The church changes. And by the way, that's nothing new, is it? That's been the experience throughout the history of of this church. As we grow, things have to change. But there are certain things that have always been at the core of who we are and will remain at the core of who we are, even in times of change. And that's those those six strands, those six themes that you've just seen up there on the screen. And in addition to that, something which has been woven in throughout the 40 days, which is prayer. The whole of the 40 days, if you hadn't noticed, was based on prayer. Those things are absolutely core to us and to who we are. But what I would say about those things is this has not been just about preserving those things. It's not just about preservation. It's not just about clinging on as if those things are somehow slipping away from us and we're trying to desperately cling on. No, we want to grow in those things. That's the point. We want to continue to grow in all of those things. See, the danger of a growing church is that things can get diluted. So community can very easily become diluted. But we don't want that to happen. We want to grow in community as the church grows. We want to grow in our love for one another. But the way that that is worked out and the way that that is expressed in a different context is inevitably different from how it was 20, 30, 40 years ago. But we do want to grow in all these things. We want to grow in our love for the word. We want to grow in, in worship. We want to grow in passion for mission and, and lifting up the name of Jesus high in this town and in the nations into which God has called us. We want to grow in the gifts of the Spirit. We want to grow in grace. 
We want to grow in love for one another. So that's what this has really been about. Not just preservation, but growing into these things. And now I've got the task this morning of bringing this to a close, bringing this season of 40 days to a close as we look forward into the future. So if you could turn with me to Matthew 16. Uh, If you have a Bible, if you don't, the words will be on the screen behind me. So Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to read from verse 13 to 18. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Now that's a question, isn't it? That's a question that every single person on this planet will have to face. At some point in their lives, everyone will face that question. Who do you say Jesus is? And everything hinges on your answer to that question. Your eternity hinges on your answer to that question. Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see, Peter has, he's got it. He's, something has clicked with him. He realizes that Jesus is not just another in a long line of human prophets, He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a rabbi. He's, he's understood that human categories are totally inadequate to describe Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now that is a sentence that should get us going. Agree? <laughs> that is this. The, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whoa, that is good to hear. That is very, very good to hear. Now Peter has spoken something very significant here. Representing the apostles, Peter has spoken out the foundational truth of the church. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You are the Christ, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. And the church is built on the apostolic witness to that decisive truth of who Jesus is. If you look in Ephesians 2.20, you see Paul talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And one way of interpreting that is that it's built on the apostolic and prophetic witness to the truth of who Jesus is. And it's like Jesus saying, Peter, I can build on you. I can build on you and the other apostles because you have received and spoken out the truth about me. I can build my church on that. That is a foundation on which I can build. But, as it says in Ephesians 2, with Jesus himself as the cornerstone, it all holds together in him. If without Jesus, it all comes tumbling down. But the thing is, that truth, that foundational apostolic truth that Peter spoke all those years ago is still right at the heart of the, tr- at the church 2,000 years on. It doesn't change, and it hasn't changed, and it won't change. It is an enduring truth. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. It will not change. Now, that stands in stark contrast to the thinking of the world. So Tim Keller says, It is striking to see that the opposition to Christian belief in each age changes radically from century to century. The existentialists of the 20th century were horrified by the views of the utilitarians of the early 19th century, who in turn mocked the beliefs of the deists of the 18th century. In every generation, 
Skeptics speak of what all intelligent people believe now, yet it is always sharply different from that which was taken as self-evident by the same kind of people just a few decades before. The racial views and discourse of our great-grandparents is offensive to us today, but almost certainly today's reigning views of race and sex and gender will be seen as laughable or outrageous by our own great-grandchildren. That's hard to imagine because the opponents of Christianity in each era are sure that they have finally arrived at the Enlightenment. That is never the case. Non-belief is notoriously unstable. Skeptical views go out of date very fast. It's true, isn't it? It's like, it's like oh, we have arrived. We've got it. Oh, we, we are wise now. We know what... It's nonsense. Absolute nonsense. As I said, that is in stark contrast to the enduring truth of the gospel. That doesn't change, and it never has, and it never will. Expressions of Christianity change, and they have changed through the ages. So if you were to read, for example, something by Martin Luther and something by C.S. Lewis, you would be able to spot many differences between the way they express themselves and the things that they're addressing, but you would also be able to see that they believe the same things. The fundamental truths of the gospel don't change. But they are trying to communicate, someone like Luther and someone like C.S. Lewis, they're trying to communicate the gospel into fundamentally different contexts and cultures. And so there is a different expression of the truth, there is a different emphasis of the truth, but it's the same challenge for us. We are trying to communicate the gospel and live out the gospel and do church together in a rapidly shifting environment, a rapidly shifting culture. And so it is inevitable that new expressions of the same glorious truth have to be found. The truth remains the same. The truth never changes. But the way we communicate it does, and it has to, if we're to reach the people we have been given to reach. New structures to support the work of the church have to be found in order to meet head-on the challenges of the culture in which we now live. Because we're not addressing a culture of 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, or 50 years ago. It is vastly different from then. So we have to find new ways of presenting the same truth, new ways of doing church together that meet the challenges of our culture. So you see, this is the ironic thing. King's Church High Wycombe must change in order to stay the same. In order to keep that truth at the centre and keep those strands of DNA right at the core and to continue growing in those things, we must change in order to stay the same. You know, in November this year, it will be 21 years since we moved into this building. And I can hear a gasp from some who were there. It's really been 21 years. That's a great milestone, isn't it? 21 years since we moved, because this place testifies to the the greatness of God. It testifies to the work of God in this church. And you know, in that time, we've nearly tripled in size. God is good, and he has been good to us. It's a great milestone, but you know, a milestone is not something you stop and stare at for too long. We will celebrate the 21 years, because it's something worth celebrating. It is a testament to 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 the greatness of God, but a milestone is not something you stop and stare at for too long. It's not the destination A milestone reassures the traveller that you're on the right path, but it always points you forwards and onwards to another destination. We have not arrived at our destination. This is not it, praise God. (laughs) This is not it. You know, we are heading towards that goal of a thousand people, to be a church for a thousand people, but that is not our destination either. 
1,000 people is a great goal to go for. It's a, and, and we feel it's something that God has given us to do. It's a great thing to go for. It's a great marker. It's a great milestone. It's a great tipping point, actually. You know, because as a church of 1,000, actually, we have the critical mass. We have the resources to be able to do so much more of what God is calling us to do. But it's not the destination. Why is it not the, not the destination? Well, because there are 130,000 people in High Wycombe. 130,000 people, and our challenge is to reach every single one of them with the gospel. God has given us this town. He has put us right here in High Wycombe by design. 130,000 people to reach. That, I believe, is our challenge. God is responsible for which ones of them come into the church, which of them get saved. It's our responsibility to reach them, though. It's our responsibility to go. Well, how do we do that? Well, one thing I know is that we can't do it as we are. We just can't. We cannot do it. Do you know there are 20% of this town are Muslims? We can't reach them from here, from this building. They're, not going to, they're right there, but they're not going to come into this building. We cannot possibly reach them as they are, as we are. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of other people in this town who we will never, ever reach with the gospel if we stay as we are. Do we have all the answers Do we know what this is going to look like? Do we have it all worked out? No, of course we don't. But Jesus does. He does. And so that's why we constantly look to him. We're constantly seeking him for his vision for the church, for his vision for King's Church High Wycombe, for the next steps for us as a church. We want to follow him because he is building his church. Now, as has been said before, we do feel the next step for us, the next step in the journey, the, the next step that God is leading us into is to be a church on many different sites to go to where people are and to serve in their community. Now, it's not my intention this morning to, to try to further convince you of the merits of, of multi-site, but I do want to make sure that we all understand, that we all know that, that you know, this is not, we're not being gung-ho about this. As in multi-site is the latest fad, everybody's doing it, so why don't we just jump on the bandwagon? And quite the opposite, actually. If anything, we err on the side of caution. You know, we know this is going to be a huge challenge. We know it's going to be a huge stretch. But we believe that God is in it, and it's about those 130,000 people. And it's about the exhortation to go. And I understand, of course, where some may have a desire for things to stay the same. I get that. I really do get that because it feels safe. It feels, it feels familiar. You know, I started coming to King's uh, as a new Christian. I was 17, a brand new Christian. And I started coming to King's just a few months before we moved into this building. And so when I first turned up, we were meeting in a school hall, which is no longer there. It's now houses. But for me, that place, that school hall, was quite a special place for me because of everything I associated with it. That was my first steps into following Jesus. That was, it was a place of meeting new friends. It was a place of welcome and, and acceptance. It was, it was the place where I was filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time. You know, and so while I was really excited that we were moving into this place, if I'm honest, in the, there was a part of me which really missed the other place at first. I really missed it. It's very easy to become emotionally attached to a place or to a particular way of doing things. But we can't, we can't let that keep us standing still. 
If we're not careful, we turn these things into an idol. We can constantly hark back to the way things used to be, but we risk turning the past into an idol as well. And we feel uneasy and threatened when things are changing. The desire for things to stay the same is ultimately a self-defeating desire. Because if you try to keep things the same, you'll end up losing what you had anyway. Because things change whether we like it or not. The world will just change, the world will just change around us. We must change to stay the same. We must change to fight for the things that really matter. To keep those truths of the gospel central and to reach people in this town for Christ. We must change to be able to do that. You know, it was a small group of pioneers that started this church. Uh, many are still here with us. By moving to the Hazelmere Estate to start something new, and then a bit later on by buying a house on the Penn Road, which was called Living Waters. It was a larger group of pioneers who gave sacrificially and went on the adventure of, of seeing this place built and moving us right into the heart of the town. Now, the majority here weren't part of that. You weren't part of it, but there is an opportunity coming to pioneer something new again, to be part of something new again, and to join in with this crazy adventure of partnering with Jesus in building his church as he builds the church. And that is the point, that's the central point of all of this. Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. Who is this I? Well, let me read a couple of things. We read this on Friday, if you were reading the notes from the 40 days. Psalm 24 says, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. He is the King of glory, and that is the one who says, I will build my church. He's the one of whom the disciples said, Who is this, that even the wind and the waves obey him? That is the one who says, I will build my church. In Revelation chapter 5, that John is having this kind of weird and wonderful apocalyptic vision of the end times. And they're looking for someone who can open this scroll, who can break the seals of this scroll and look inside. And this is the unfolding of all of history. And, um, and they couldn't find anyone. It says, I, John says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the living creatures and the elders. And then they start up this song about this person, this lion of the tribe of Judah, this lamb who has been slain. They start up this song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. You are worthy because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You ransomed, you redeemed, you gathered people into the church. You are worthy. And then as if that wasn't enough, the angels then start to join in. They bring this kind of response and confirmation. They're surrounded by... I know, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of angels, and they're all singing at the top of their voice, and I think we have no idea, no idea of what that would be like. But they sing at the top of their voices, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That is who says, I will build my church. And if he says it, I believe him. I believe him. Do you know what? When he says, 
I will build my church, when he says it's my church, he really, really means it. He really means it. You know, something that really bugs me about politics, and we saw this particularly in the last election, is just how stage-managed everything is. You know, spin is the word, isn't it? Just how stage-managed it all is. So, for example, you get the party leader standing on a platform surrounded by a crowd of people, and they've got their tie off and top button undone and jacket off and shirt sleeves rolled up, and it's like saying, I'm a man of the people, I'm like you, I'm one of you, I'm hard-working, I'm no-nonsense, I'm honest. The problem is, you know that there's something about this which doesn't quite ring true. It's not natural, it's not spontaneous, you know that someone has decided and managed every aspect of that scenario. They've decided whether the top button should be undone or not. And so you kind of see this management of the situation. Maybe it's just me being very cynical. But... <laughs> and then the stock phrases that come out. So, for example, it's the right thing to do. How many times have we heard politicians of all parties say, it's the right thing to do? Or the hard-working families of Britain. <laughs> I mean... The problem is, these phrases lose all meaning and they start to irritate you. I mean, they do me anyway. I'm just speaking myself here. People see through the spin, though. I think people see through fakeness. And there's one thing I've noticed recently uh, among politicians. By the way, I'm not having a go at politicians here. I, I admire politicians who go into politics to make a difference. It's really the system that we're in that, makes all, that requires all this to happen. But something I've noticed, and maybe you have as well... Uh, with politicians at the moment, none of them say the NHS anymore. None of them refer to the NHS, it's our NHS. Have you noticed that when they're on question time, when they're being interviewed? It's always our NHS. They always say our NHS. And it's like saying, you know, I'm in this with you. We're all in this together. I'm part, and I'm really passionate about the NHS. The problem is it comes across as fake passion, whether it is or not. It comes across in that way because of this phrasing that's being used. But here, in Revelation 5, here we have someone who is surrounded by a great crowd, but this is no party leader. This is no party political leader. This is, there is no pretense here. There is no spin. This really is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He really is the lamb who was slain. This is who he actually is. He's not pretending, and he is worshipped because he really is the only one who is worthy. And it's him, it's this Jesus who says, I will build my church. And he doesn't mean it in an our NHS kind of way. He really, really means it. This is my church. This is my church. He is passionate about it. And so I wince whenever I hear anyone speak badly of the church. We need to be so careful how we speak about the church. We need to be careful how we lead the church because it's his. It's his. It belongs to him. He loves it. He gave himself for it. We are the bride of Christ. And he is building it. And he builds it supernaturally. This is a supernatural. What we have here today is utterly supernatural. In Acts 18, God says to Paul in a dream while Paul's staying in Corinth, he says, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, because I am with you and I have many people in this city. And for most of us, that's a very familiar phrase because that has been spoken over us prophetically as well. God has many people in this town. We are to keep on speaking and not be silent. We are to keep on reaching people with the gospel, but it's God who adds them. God has many people in this town. And God adds people to the church who are utterly unwinnable in the natural. And by the way, that's all of you. 
us, all of us, utterly unwinnable in the natural. He grows the church. He builds the church with, with miracles. It is supernatural. You know, you could grow a big church full of religious people who like a bit of music and who like a pep talk every week, but that's not a church. The church is built of people who were hostile to God, who were enemies of God, who were dead in their sins and have now been born again. Every single one a miracle, a wonderful miracle. In Philippi, we see three people who God uses to build the church. He uses Lydia. Lydia is a businesswoman. It says that God opened her heart to respond to the gospel. Then there was a demon-possessed slave girl who was set free in the name of Jesus. And there was a jailer, and God sent an earthquake to that jail. He shook that place. Why did he do all that? Because he came for him. He wanted that jailer for his own and his family. So a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a jailer who was about to kill himself. That is the church. That's the church, and it is miraculous. And you know, it reminds me of stories of so many people here as well. Reminds me of the story of Dave Richards, uh, who's with the Lord now, but many of you know him, known as Bricky Dave. Dave was a getaway driver for a criminal gang, and he had been in prison, and really life was going nowhere, and then God intervenes. Bang. He's just driving along the road one day. He feels compelled for some reason, compelled to drive up this long driveway. And for those who know where it is, wet, it was wet over at Bullstrode. To drive up this long driveway and just speak to someone there, and he's saved. And God broke into his life in a wonderful way. He was transformed, and Dave ends up going into prisons to bring the gospel into the prison. It's amazing. What a story. It reminds me of the story of Stan, and I'm sure Stan won't remind me sharing this. He's shared it many times up here before. Stan, who was lost in the pit of depression, utterly hopeless, and then Jesus breaks in and transforms him, brings him hope. It reminds me of the story of someone who just uh, came to, to Wickham one Sunday morning. He just came to park his car over there to go for a coffee. He noticed some people coming in the building. He decided to come and check out what, what this was, and he comes in, and he ends up getting saved. There are so many stories, so many stories. Jesus is building his church. We can't do any of that. He's building his church, and it is miraculous. Every single one of you who is in Christ is a miracle of grace. You have a story. We all have a story of transformation. Now, for any visitors here this morning, I do apologize if this has felt a bit in-house. You know, with all the talk of 40 days and the past and the the future, let me just tell you a few things about this church. Yeah, I love this church. I really, and I'm talking about the people, not the building. You understand that? I really, really love this church. Because for me, this has been a place of welcome, of grace, of love, of acceptance, and of growth. You know, it's my, this is my home. You know, I came across just the other day something which some, a prophetic word which somebody had written down for me many, many years ago. It must be, I don't know, about 17, 18 years ago. And in this prophetic word, it said, God is giving the people of this church to you as a gift. And it's true. I saw it the other day and I thought, that's absolutely true. The people of the church, you, you're just a gift to me. And have been and, and, and continue to be. This, this, it just feels like home. And I know it's the same for many people. I've spoken to many people who have said coming here has felt like coming home. And so, you know, King's Church High Wycombe is an amazing place. This is an incredible community. We have kids and teens and babies and grandparents and great-grandparents. 
from zero all the way up to 90. We have lone parents. We have those who are single. We have those who are same-sex attracted. We have those who are married. We have those who have gone through the heartache of divorce and the pain of bereavement. We have many who are healthy, some who are in remission, others who are still fighting and believing. We have the long-term sick and the long-term carers. We have the employed and the job seeker. We have law keepers and former law breakers, police officers right alongside those who have turned over a new leaf. We have those who depend for their life on prescription drugs and those who have taken drugs illegally. We have trained counsellors and those in need of counselling. We have those who have been set free, wonderfully set free, from the shackles of debt and depression and addiction. And we have those who are still struggling with those things. We have one-time atheists, agnostics, sceptics, and even Jehovah's Witnesses. And based on a straw poll we did in the office just this week, in a very, very short space of time, we could think of well over of people from well over 50 different nations who have passed through these doors. Over 50 nations. That reminds you of Revelation 7. You know, this great multitude of, from every tribe, language, people, tongue, standing before the throne of God, crying out, salvation belongs to our God. We just see a glimpse of it now. But here's the thing. Because of Jesus, we are all one. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're healthy or sick, whether you're black or white, we are all one. We have one hope, we have one faith, one baptism, one spirit, and one Lord and Savior and King over all, Jesus Christ. This church is full of flawed people. It's full of imperfections, but it is miraculous. And it is amazing, and it is beautiful, and I love it. More importantly, though, Jesus loves it. He really loves it. This is his church. He, he is possessive over his church. And that's why, it's for that reason, that it's not ultimately about multi-site or about small groups or about uh, the latest preaching series. Those are all mechanisms. Now, it's about the 130,000 people that God has given us to reach with the gospel. How are we going to do that? I don't know. I have no idea. But I know his call is to go. That is his call on us, is to go. So are you up for the challenge? Are you up for that adventure? Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Amen.